With Luke and Susie and Faith, family, culture, and we love a good story. And our next guest is going to walk us through the life of one of our greatest storytellers. He is, in fact, uh, one of the key people behind the Cadbury Yowie, the original Milky Bar Kid commercial. He created Louis the Fly whilst in a taxi and is the author of over 20 books, even though he only started writing at the age of 52. He started with the world-renowned book, The Power of One, a global hit which a movie was made about. Bryce Courtney, Storyteller, is the brand new book, a new book written by his wife, Christine Courtney, who joins us right now. Christine, hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Luke. What an incredible life he lived. And I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to go, well, I'm going to try my hand at writing at the age of 52 and then writes The Power of One, which of course, (laughs) it starts off pretty well. But his entire life is just filled with incredible stories, Christine. It really is. His entire life reads like the tales in his novels. And I think with The Power of One, you know, he decided from a young child, he was going to be a writer like many of his family members were, and they were all great storytellers. And that book had been bubbling away in him. And when he finally did sit down and write, this is what happened, the opening lines to the book, you know, it just poured out of him. And it had a kind of a freshness and a rawness that I think readers love. And he had nothing to lose. And in fact, didn't think anyone would read it. He thought it was a practice book and he'd have to write four more before he became published. Well, and it shows what was born into his work ethic, where he always just worked hard and never assumed that he was just going to pen the masterpiece. But uh, the the book itself, The Power of One, I was just talking to our producer who is South African, and as a young girl, she was talking about it being school curriculum when she was growing you know, up in look, South Africa. I believe it's still on the school curriculum, and it really took South Africa by storm. And Bryce was worried, actually, when it came out. He wrote a letter to his mother, which I discovered where he said, I'm not sure if I'll be able to go there because he was very critical of the regime and he feared he might be arrested. Um, it was one of the reasons he left South Africa because of his, he grew up not long after the era of apartheid started. Um, but of course that didn't happen and um, it's uh, still very popular in South Africa as it has been around the world and it's really part of Price's brand if you like isn't it but he had so many stories in him even just before he passed away he told me there were five more books you know he'd hoped to write but he was in a tearing hurry having started much later than he thought yeah uh, writing a book in tribute to someone like Bryce Courtney must be like trying to sing a song in tribute to Whitney Houston or painting abstract art in honor of <laughs> Picasso, bit of pressure, Christine. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> you know, it it did feel like a great responsibility because I realised that Bryce. I remember what Bryce had said that whitewashing a family story isn't a story at all. And he also said that if you shake any family cupboard, it rattles like hell. And I knew that readers wouldn't want a book that was going to be sugar coated. And I guess when a book is written by a wife, they think, oh, yeah, it's going to be mush. Well, I can assure you this isn't mush. And what has given me great um, comfort is to be able to write the book very much in Bryce's voice because I found these incredible letters written from childhood, which were like a diary of his life. And many of extracts of them are included in the book. 
And I remember as well that Bryce said, you know, just as his grandfather had told him, a good story must have a bucket full of tears and a belly full of love. And this <laughs> book is brimming with that. And I'm told by the publisher, a few dear friends uh, that have now had a chance to read it, that it's a big good book and they couldn't put it down. <laughs> so I'm very, that's very nice to hear. Yeah. Well, but it was very emotional, you know, and I realised I had a lot of unresolved grief and I felt a lot of trepidation about writing it and there were times when I just thought I can't do this uh, and then I think well it is 10 years and I think now Bryce would feel okay with it and he would I couldn't think of a better way to pay tribute to his life and he, his life was far more than about any of us he was a public figure a literary hero and uh, I thought, you know, his readers had asked me to write this, and even though I felt conflicted at, start, at first, once I started, I couldn't stop. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because with all the pressure we're talking about is the fact that you it's not like you are, you know, not credentialed. You've been spending decades of your life in media and communication and, and you know, achieved many, many things. So to, for you to have written a book, no one would normally bat an eyelid, but it's Bryce Courtney, right? <laughs> it's- yeah, Bryce Courtney, right? Yes. I mean, as it was, I had started. What else do you do in lockdown when you're sick of Netflix? Yeah. You know, I had written 30% of a memoir about my own life and having founded an adventure, pioneering adventure travel company in the 1970s. And it was really just after I really wrote an essay kind of to hone my writing skills. I thought I wrote a book, a chapter about how I met Bryce. I showed it to a girlfriend. She said, this is fantastic. Why don't you write another chapter? And I said, is this my destiny to write the story of Bryce Courtney? And then I thought that, you know, there were decades when we weren't together, even though we had met in 1993, although we didn't become romantically involved until 2005. But once I found the letters, I had the material I needed. Plus, I chatted with a lot of close friends of his, some family members, and there were hundreds of media interviews and documentaries, and he'd done a wonderful series of interviews with the Oral History Unit at the National Library in Canberra, which he'd never mentioned. And there were his his books. The more I delved and dug into his life, the more I realised how much of his own life he'd woven into his books, and I draw on them in the telling of his story. Well, and it's fascinating because he is a, a, a rare mix that so often as you know, we speak to authors on our show and have for you know, 20 years that mm. just because someone is great at writing a story <laughs> doesn't mean they're very personable to have a conversation. They spend so much of their time in their head, that's where their exactly. art and their magic happens that when it comes to talking out loud, they, it's often a struggle socially. He was one of the most compelling conversations I ever had and I think – I was trying to track back. Mm. I think it was in the in the year he passed in in two thousand and twelve that I that yeah. I spoke to him, and he just had me captivated with his yeah. stories about anything. He, he could He's have told me about putting the bins out, being. and I would have just been on the edge of my seat. Exactly. He had a gift, you know. He used to teach writing, and in fact, he taught the last class a writing course, which I produced a film about because he wanted to record his his tips for writing for future writers, but. He was someone that just had this incredible passion for life, an insatiable curiosity, wonderful sense of humour. And he thought that 
every day was a miracle, just like you thought growing vegetables, growing things was a miracle. And I think because it had a very tough, fragmented childhood, every day that was a good day was something to celebrate. And he also loved Australia. He loved the gift that he'd been given by coming here, being embraced, and he just felt gratitude. He wasn't someone who was spoiled. And he just had this positivity about him. But even in the childhood letters, people would say, you know, even if he got beaten up by the Boer kids, the little communities and institutions he was in and out of, he'd always dust himself off and start laughing or run out and pick up a ball for a game of rugby. He had this innate positivity and you could never be serious for long with Bryce. He'd always have me in stitches. Uh, he um... And he'd also, you know, encourage you to follow whatever dream you had, however small or big it was. And I'd say, oh, I can't do that. He'd say, darling, you can and what's more, you must. And I actually hope that this book will inspire people to hold tight to their dreams just as Bryce did to become a writer and just as I have to complete this book something I never imagined I'd be capable of writing. Yeah. And despite his natural ability, natural talent, and the life that he lived and the vibrancy that he often lived it with, still he would put down as one of the the, the key ingredients that enabled him to be successful is what he talked about with bum glue. The, the, it was just this work ethic. It was, you know, glued himself to Incredible. the seat and wouldn't get off until the job was done. Exactly. Even when he was stricken with cancer and very unwell, he finished Jack of Diamonds, his final book, 12 days before he passed away. And I said, I actually told him not to finish it. I said, darling, what's the point? These are precious, precious days, even hours, to spend with your family, your grandchildren, with me, for God's sake. And he said, I must finish my book. I've signed a contract. My readers are waiting for it. I will finish the book and finish it. He did. And I think from an early age, you know, he'd had to work. He supplemented his struggling mother's income, getting odd jobs here, there and everywhere. He worked in a bookshop when he was at the King Edward Seventh Boarding School in Johannesburg. He went off to spray bugs in a fruit farm after leaving school and then he worked in the very dangerous job of the mines, Northern Rhodesia, and nearly got blown up. I mean, work was all he knew. And I think, in fact, we all wish he'd spent more time to smell the roses. I I used to look at him and think there was almost a monomania about it. There was almost an obsession that I felt sometimes was quite sad. And I think, you know, but he, he all, like a lot of people who'd grown up in the war and the depression, he always felt the wind up his back. And when people have known poverty and hardship, they, they always have that fear lurking within. And I think, you know, maybe there was a lot of feeling of shame and abandonment from his childhood never really feeling you're good enough and always having to keep proving that that you have got something that's worthwhile. And he was someone who always said his greatest fear was not being loved. And, you know, even though he was greatly loved, um, but in, I used, as I wrote in the book, you sometimes wondered if, if it was enough. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a nice reminder to us that everybody goes through their stuff, right? Now, we sit there and the name Bryce Courtney sure. means the world to us, but he had his individual battles like every every one of us did. As you said, no one no one gets, gets off. Everyone has tragedy and, and yeah. difficulties in life. And I think his empathy 
for others was something that really allowed him to connect with people and his readers, and they loved him for that. Yeah. And he was always grateful that people kept buying his books. He always worried each year that <laughs> that that they wouldn't, but of course, of course, they did, and they used to just dream of having that book under the Christmas tree each year. He would say, along with the socks and the chocolates under the Christmas tree, because he saw himself as a storyteller. He did. He didn't see himself as some sort of highbrow writer that lived up in the clouds and where he'd sort of sit in the garret and his book would be read by six people. And Brad said, if people aren't going to read it, what's the point of, <laughs> of writing it? Um, and, um, you know, it really has been a privilege to write it. It was very hard, though. I mean, it took every drop of blood and I was six months late with my wonderful editor, Rachel Scully, who had worked with Bryce on several books, was so patient and and uh, took changes up to almost the printing deadline because I was researching and writing at the same time. So it really was um, a race to the finish. But we really look at it now, and I said to Rachel the other day, I'm very happy with it. In the time that we had, it's, it's a good read, and I think Bryce would be very thrilled. And he would have jumped up and down with excitement and said, "Good bottles come bottles." <laughs> One of the things I found uh, just absolutely fascinating was not just the original story, but even just the aftermath of the fact that he had the story of how he created. Louis the Fly in a taxi under the threat of being fired if he didn't do something. <laughs> he comes out <laughs> scribbling out of this bit, and I was just on the edge of my seat hearing this story. And then I was I was reading about the fact that he he made a comment that almost like the most common thing that people want to talk about is Louis the Fly, uh, and he could probably have not written any of the novels, and still people would want to. <laughs> that's the story. Absolutely, that they would want. when he was in one of the marathons in in New York, running a marathon. He, someone held up a placard saying, they must have recognised but saying, Louis the Fly, the Prime Minister. And by the way, Bryce always acknowledged that there was that was a team effort and there were other people that were involved in that campaign. But um, there is no doubt about it that, that Louis the Fly is always um, dragged out and he thought that was going to be his epitaph, not uh, <laughs> writer and storyteller, which is what it is. <laughs> uh, it was, of course, he had this natural ability to, to tell a story. He had a natural ability to see something and to create something, you know, and Louis the Fly being an example of that. Um, but he also, what you've highlighted is he probably lived more firsthand than many novelists do, that they often go research and find somebody else's story. But when so much of it is stuff that he's actually dynamically lived... There must yeah. be some of that, which is what creates his vibrancy. Definitely. I mean, rereading his novels as I did, he wove so many aspects of his childhood into his into his books. And it was a dramatic childhood. And he used to say, don't feel sorry for me, darling. My childhood has given me the most amazing cachet of material for my books. And if I just had a nice middle-class lifestyle living in the suburbs, I wouldn't have had much to write about. He said, you know, he was grateful for having had a tough life. And I think he brought that into his dazzling advertising career. And he said every advertisement is a story, so he couldn't have had a better training as a writer. Also, he was used to writing to deadline. And he said if he hadn't had deadlines, he would never have been able to to write books because, um, you know, he said you have to have a deadline. 
Well, it's wonderful. I'm so glad you, you put this work together. Still, the, the conversation I had with Bryce was one of my highlights of all time in 20 years of, of radio. It was um, a wonderful conversation I had with him. And now to, to follow it up and find out more and learn more about the man um, is something that's a, a wonderful opportunity for me. So thank you for putting together the book, Bryce Courtney, Storyteller. Thank you very much. And I'm very humbled and very honoured to hear what you said and so thrilled. And all the best to your your listeners for the remainder of the year and the festive season and look forward to chatting with you again one day. Christine Courtney, our guest, thank you so much.